Good morning. Welcome to The Home Show. I'm Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, I'll be chatting to Irish Times tech journalist Kira O'Brien about the most interesting gadgets for your bedroom. We'll explain how to deal with a renting dispute and what exactly your rights are. Horticulturalist Fanula Fallon will be showing us how to create that perfect courtyard garden. And interior designer to the stars, Arlene McIntyre, will be bringing the bling to your bathroom. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. You can listen live, listen back to the show and all of our podcasts. They're up there on the News Talk website or the app, uh, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, you're very welcome along uh, this morning, folks. And uh, I want to ask you a question about when you go away, if you're lucky enough to go away in a nice hotel, what is the one thing that you are most looking forward to? Is it the crisp sheets on the bed, having somebody come in and clean your room every day? Or is it luxuriating, like I love, in a large bathroom a beautiful bath using up all of the little designer toiletries that you can find while bathrooms loom large on people's wish lists in their own homes as well. And there's a huge trend towards that hotel look, that plush looks feeling uh, at home and more on that later uh, when we find out what an unlimited budget can buy you for your bathroom. But what is the one thing you would like in your loo bathroom if money was no object, is it a wet room, gold taps, mirrors on the ceiling? Let me know. Uh, text us here 53106 for 30 cent or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And you're very welcome along to the show today. Now, one room where you don't think tech should make an appearance may be the bedroom where you want peace, quiet and rest or maybe not. Well, here to talk about tech and the bedroom is Kira O'Brien, uh, who is, of course, business and tech journalist with the Irish Times. Kira, you're very welcome back to the home show. Now, I have to say, this is a contentious one. I'm not a big fan of anything other than a low-level light bulb in the bedroom. No, and look, this is this is actually where where technology can help. If that's the case, um, I am a big kind of a big believer that the right lighting can make a room. Uh, I'm married to a lighting designer, so obviously that, that, that kind of stumps you at some point. Um, lighting can be, you know, this is where you can bring tech into your bedroom. Lighting is, uh, you know, there's different types of connected smart lighting. So you can actually you know, use your, your Wi-Fi connected bulbs to create a, a mood in your, your room. So we have Wi-Fi bulbs all over the house, mainly because look, it's for a security thing. So if we're away from home, if we are say maybe we're late home or even just in winter, I can uh, basically tell the lights to turn on and off even if I'm not at home. So yeah, there is that side of it, but there are certain um, certain light bulbs that you can say, so you can dim them, you can, without having to have dimmer switches fitted, you can change the colour temperature and you can even, with, with the Philips Hue light bulbs, you can uh, create, I suppose, mood lighting that fits, you know, say maybe candlelight so it, it actually changes colour. Oh, right. So okay. why, do you, why do you have your single light bulb? You know, you can actually make it do an awful lot more if you've invested in smart lighting. OK, so the light bulbs, the and of course, all of these are, are LED. They're all the um, uh, eco-friendly light bulbs because everything is so expensive at the moment. We don't spend any more on that. So changing colours. So give us some manufacturers, some names that we can look at for that. 
Sure, the Philips Hue light bulbs. Um, I mean, I've seen, I, people know Philips from the, the, the electronic yeah. side of things. Uh, there's also a, t- a company called TP Link that do that they have they have two brands. They have castle light bulbs, which cost a little bit more, and then they have um, Tapo bulbs, which are very basic. They, they 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 do white, and they can kind of we have one say in our hall that I can dim. You know, when the kids go to bed, but they still want a light on. Mm. So we have we have those ones, um, and you know, there, there's there's some great features in them. You know, you can set them up so. You know, they, they turn on to a certain color temperature or um, they turn on at a certain time. So, and then more importantly, they turn off at a certain time. So you don't have light bulbs on when you don't need them, which, you know, I suppose with people today, you know, trying to cut costs, it is something that people have to consider. And that's the the kind of the one of the the key things for me. Okay. now uh, we're all into tracking everything these days with the little Fitbits and all the gadgets and tracking our running and our walking and our sleeping and all of that. The sleep tracker stuff, I I don't know, like I don't have one of these. My husband does. And sometimes it can be nearly more stressful to find out, actually, you didn't sleep as well as you thought you had. You wake up fine and refreshed, but your tracker saying, no, you were awake between 3 and 3.20 this morning. What's your take on them, Kira? I would be of the same opinion. It can be a bit stressful, but I use it now. I've kind of, I've concentrated less on the figures and more you know, does it fit in with how I feel? You know, so it's no point in if, if it tells me that I had a terrible night's sleep and I feel fine, you know, it, it's not very useful. Um, but there are different ways of doing this. So, you know, you can actually buy a sleep tracker that will fit underneath, it's like a pad, it fits underneath the mattress on your bed. You plug it in, it will tell you if you're tossing and turning, it'll tell you if you're restful night's sleep, it'll tell you how much REM sleep you've got. It, it mm. thinks that you've got based on algorithms. But crucially, and this might be of interest to some people, uh, if you suspect you have sleep apnea, this is one of the few devices, I suppose, you can buy off the shelf that will track um, any kind of those episodes. You know, so if you if you feel like you're 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 stopping breathing or you're not getting enough oxygen while you sleep, this okay. will help. I mean, okay, so that's helpful, within, actually. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it, it can be a medical thing because obviously, you know, this can all contribute to different medical conditions. And you know, if you if you're waking up, you're if you're sleeping. You know, your tracker is telling you that you're sleeping 10 hours a night. You're still waking up tired. You know, there mm. has to be a reason. This can kind of help pinpoint it. Now, you can get, you know, those, as you mentioned, you know, your husband has a, has a sleep tracker, but I cannot wear a watch in bed. Can't do it. I just, yeah, I don't know what see, it is. that's it. it. I'm suffocating. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it gets caught in bed linen and all that kind of thing. So I suppose that's just something that is um, a matter of taste. Now, there are yeah. lots of people out there, and I know plenty of people who can't get sleep without some noise. In fact, they don't want a quiet room and they listen to the radio or they put in earplugs and drift off that way. And um, certainly people I, I understand who suffer from tinnitus, they also it, it can get more rest if there's a kind of something distracting from that from that neurological condition by way of, of noise and audio. So mm-hmm. for people like that, what do you recommend, Kira? Well, there are different um, kind of like sleep headphones that you can get. If See, the, the, the thing with noise machines, you can get, obviously, get white noise machines. You can put a white noise app on your phone, plug your phone in, and which is another, you know, it's another one of those things that I'm not 100% sure mm. of doing because fire risk. I mean, I had a very um, scary episode a few years ago where a phone that was charging on my bedside locker, the, the, the cable sparked. Wow. Um, while I was, my, my child was in, in the bed with me, you know, and it was you know, two o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, that, that's something to consider, you know, if you're thinking about doing these things. There used to be like a, a, a kind of a, a smart alarm that you'd put under your, it was an app on your phone, you'd put it under your pillow and it would wake you at a certain time when it felt that your sleep cycle was at the optimal time to be woken up. 
But I always found, you know, when I did that, my phone was so hot from being charged all night. Uh, and also from being trapped under a pillow with no yeah, air that you know, it was, yeah. I actually stopped using and it. And it can, it can start a fire. I must say, I'm one of those people who only charges my phone during the day. I won't yes. leave it plugged in at night and I, I'd always have a kind of a worry about that. Okay, it's, so audio, so so those little earbuds, I mean, you don't want anything over the over the head, well, are, obviously. But. There are earphones that are built for sleep. Cocoon, a company called Cocoon, I reviewed a set of earphones that they do. Um, they're called Cocoon Relax Sleep Headphones. So you, you can get them if you prefer those. Like they've kind of got a lower profile than your standard over-ear headphones. They have meditations that you can play. And then once it senses that the earphones, if, say if you roll over in your sleep and the earphones come off, it actually stops the program. So it's not, you know, randomly playing. And I, I think that, you know, if you are going to have, say, either a, a, a white noise machine or, you know, an app on your phone, I, if you share a room with somebody, this can be the cause okay. of many <laughs> an argument. The earphones are, are a good idea. Um, they have, you know, there's also pillows. I mean, there's the pillows that have speakers built into them. Cocoon no make a way. A yeah. pillow? Yeah. Okay. They're, right. Uh, there's pillows that have, and they, that they vibrate to kind of get you to sleep. Now, personally, that sounds like my idea of hell. There are bands that, you know, there are headphones that you can get that are actually like a soft band. Um, you can get them for running as well, but you can also get them for sleep. And I've, I saw them a few years ago at CES as sleep headphones. And then they arrived on my desk a few years later, uh, repurposed as running headphones. Um, again, you know, it all depends. Like I actually can think of nothing worse than sleeping with like a headband around my head. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, if you wake up in the middle of the night and it's kind of, you know, worked its way down your face, that's not an ideal way for me to wake <laughs> it's up. It's not personally. very restful. I think no. I'll give the smart pillows an old miss. Um, and then finally, uh, smart beds. Now, are, yes. are we talking here about ones that go up, down, shake it all about kind of thing? Well, ones that have sensors to kind of track your heart rate, respiration, you know, your sleep quality. So basically what those trackers will do, except it's built into your bed. Now, look, if you have the money to, to kind of pay out for these things, you know, anything kind of from over well over a thousand euro and upwards, um, you know, a lot of people will go for the smart mattress as opposed to the smart bed. But like some of the smart beds have the Bluetooth speakers built into it. They've got recharging pads. And, you know, I've, they say like the sleep number beds, sleep number 360, I think is one of the ones that are out there. There's a bed in DFS actually that does have integrated wireless charging and, and Bluetooth connected speakers. Um, you know, that they're, they're there if you want them. Now, I, I'm not sure I personally would be, you know, interested in, in, in that. I think I'd rather just have a Bluetooth battery powered speaker beside my... Uh, my bed and maybe consider separate rooms if it was really bothering my husband but um, <laughs> that's just it's just it, 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 the, the, it, you can you can spend absolute mad money on these things yeah. now the one thing actually that you can get cheaply enough these days is smart kind of curtains now obviously there's a caveat here it would work better for some type of curtains than others um, if you have the, the kind of the curtains that have the rings and those little hooks um, what makes a, what makes a curtain smart? It's basically a little motor that you fit to the curtain. It's called switchbot curtain. Um, and I had mixed results with this. Now it took me three goes to find curtains that would actually work with in our house because most of our curtains are those kind of ring top curtains and they're thermal blackout mm. curtains, so they were quite heavy. Um, but basically, what it is, it's like it's a small motor. It's hard to describe the size. Maybe the size of a jar, uh, a skinny jar. And you fit it on either side of the curtain. You actually don't see it because of where it sits on the curtain. And then there's an app. And you can kind of, I have it set and say, they're in my daughter's room. And she's eight. And she thinks this is the best thing that's ever happened to her. God. <laughs> you know, so I'm, 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 I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future if this is the best thing that's ever happened to her. Um, and every morning at half seven, her curtain's open. 
because I've set it, I've told it to, to, to open at that time. Now, you have to charge them every so often because they're, you know, they're obviously they've rechargeable batteries in them. But about once a month, um, you charge them. I gave her a little remote control. She can open them on weekends. Right. So, but weekdays, 20 past seven, half seven, those curtains open. Get her ready for school. It's a nice way to do it, you know, because it's daylight. And yeah. I don't know how it's going to work in winter now when she's opening the curtains at 20 past seven and it's still dark. I don't yeah. think it's going to work as well yeah. then. But, you there's know, no, there's no motor that can count for that. All okay. right. Well, listen, Kira O'Brien, I don't know whether you've given us a restless or a restful night's sleep, but it is always informative to talk to you. And uh, tech in the bedroom, I'm not convinced. But listen, for those who are, and there's plenty of you out there, um, that is a, a selection of top tips and new products there from Kira O'Brien business and tech journalist with the Irish Times Kira, thanks a million for joining us on the home show thanks so much now still to come after the break whether you're a landlord or a tenant what should you do if you're dealing with a rental dispute well we're going to have Thresholds John Mark McCafferty here to explain exactly what your rights are so stay tuned for that And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. My name is Sinead Ryan. I'm with you till the top of the hour. Before the break, Kira O'Brien was here talking about tech for the bedroom. I don't know. I'm still in two minds about that. I don't think it's the place for gadgets and electrical items and all that kind of thing. But do let me know what you think. 53106 for 30 cent if you'd like to get in touch today. Or you can email us here at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Now, there have been a few recent rental disputes involving well-known people who had resorted to the Residential Tenancies Board to mediate and they made the headlines. But we thought we'd get the lowdown on how this powerful body um, works, what it does and how it deals with rent disputes and what are the do's and don'ts on both sides. So joining me now to explain all of this and talk about the rights and responsibilities of tenants and landlords is John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive of Threshold, the National Housing Charity. You're very welcome into the studio, John. Thank Mark. you very much, Sinead. Nice you. to see you here. Now, listen, this is an area fraught with confusion and despite I suppose, increased protections and we have rent caps and pressure zones and all that kind of thing. It seems to me that more than ever, people fall foul of what am I allowed to do? What are they allowed to do? You know, everything from deposits to putting in a nail in the wall. So we're hoping to maybe get some clarity from you. But let's start with the RTB. It's a statutory body. So what what is its role exactly? Sure, Sinead. So, I mean, the RTB or the Residential Tenancies Board is the state body charged with regulating the rental sector um, and has several roles. It maintains a national register of tenancies, including ensuring that tenancies are registered by landlords. Not everybody's managed to do that, as we found out. Indeed, indeed. People maybe who draw up the legislation, but Uh, let's not go there. And even if um, an estate agent is, is... my overall managing that tenancy, it's the it's the landlord's responsibility um, to ensure that the the um, tenancy is is indeed yeah, registered. Could cost you your job if you don't. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and also, the RTB provides information to both landlords and tenants um, about the rental rules, and it conducts research uh, and it also informs policy. But for most people, the most significant role of the RTB. Uh, is, is around resolving disputes uh, between tenants and landlords um, and it does that via a dispute resolution process which involves either mediation or a more formal hearing and adjudication mm. process. I think it's great to see statutory bodies and indeed any organisation 
uh, using mediation as a process? Because, I mean, you're in a power imbalance very often if you've got a big commercial landlord who's buckets of money and deep pockets and you've got this tenant who simply can't afford to go to court. You know, it's it's great to have that. So that that's the good news. And, yeah. and they can do that. That's quite, it's free or cheap. Um, it, it's very, very cheap in terms of lodging a, lodging a dispute. Yeah. Um, Is it binding? So, well, I mean... It's binding insofar as, you know, a, an agreement is made and a determination order then is, is sought. Um, now, my understanding is, you know, where uh, one party or another doesn't um, honour that, um, it can, can go to mm-hmm. the court. But okay. um, essentially, this is the place where the RTB is the place where both um, mediation takes place and also the hearings and adjudication processes as an alternative to the courts, because yeah. prior to 2004, um, there was hardly any, um, there was effectively no Mechanism. residential tenancies yeah. legislation. Yeah. Um, you had to go to the courts, so therefore, obviously, if you have more resources, um, uh, you're better placed to go through the courts process. Um, generally speaking, it would be the landlords who would be better resourced relative to the tenants. So there is a, a, an attempt here to kind of um, redress that power and balance. Even it out. No more than, say, the small claims court does. It's it's just yeah. a great kind of way that we, you can kind of get some kind of uh, equality in both yeah, sides. Okay. Exactly. Now, look, we get lots and lots of emails into the Home Show at the Home Show at Newstalk.com about people's rights and what people can and can't do. And indeed, in my own column in the, in the Indo, the property column, um, all of the time. So... They seem to distill into a couple of categories and I'm sure this is possibly the experience of the RTB and indeed yourselves in Threshold. One of the big ones is where landlords withhold deposits. Uh, Now, deposit can be quite significant as I'm sure students are finding out now going back to college. I mean, you're talking about a month or two months in advance. So to to have that withheld when you're leaving is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Where can it be done and where can it absolutely not be done? Okay, so I mean... In terms of deposits, retention of deposits by landlords continues to be one of the top four issues affecting threshold clients. So people who come to us as the national housing charity assisting and advising um, clients in the private rented sector, um, it's very, very uh, common as an issue. And it accounts for approximately one fifth of all disputes brought to the Residential Tenancies Board. So it's consistently the second most common dispute brought by tenants to the RTB. So a deposit will often represent the full extent of an individual's or a family savings mm. for people who are on kind of lower incomes. And if you're leaving, you need it for the next place, don't you? So it's exactly. really important. Okay. Really crucial. So what are landlords withholding deposits for? Is it is it like, you know, you, you've broken a window or, you know, stained the carpet? Are, are they allowed to do that? Sometimes um, they just withhold the, the deposit without necessarily a very, very strong um, reason. Um, in other cases, they will cite um, a reason and it can often be for very, very minor uh, issues, really wear and tear what you would expect mm. in a tenancy if someone's been in that tenancy for five or ten years. Mm. Um, and I suppose that's where we come in. We advise the tenant. Um, clearly, if you know it appears that um, a deposit is being with, withheld because... Um, there has been substantial um, a substantial kind of cost um, incurred by the landlord. Then you know that that needs to be um, respected. However, um, where we come in is where um, tenants are, are coming to us and they're reporting that um, the landlord is is withholding um, contrary to the, the legislation mm. in this area. 
Okay, so uh, it's kind of, it sounds a little bit like, when is wear and tear and when is it something that's damaged? And I suppose that's where the RTB comes in to kind of mediate that. Absolutely, that, okay. that's their role to ascertain um, what side um, of the argument this yeah. falls. Okay, now um, I have heard cases, certainly when it comes to student um tenants and student accommodation where there are tales abound of landlords walking into properties to Maria have a look around or check things out are they allowed to do that when when you have a lease in place or or do they have to notify you when they turn up landlords and their authorized agents you know for example estate agents they um they may request a reason what's known as a reasonable notice okay. um uh, that they want to carry out an inspection and and also a kind of reasonable frequency as well. Um, so, but it must be done at a date and time which is uh, you know in advance for the for the tenant. And if a suggested time is not convenient, an alternative should be arrived okay. So at as long as the, the tenant parties. can be there and do a bit of a tidy up maybe yeah. before they come in. All right. Uh, now, in terms of status, we've seen some horror stories about. Um, flats and, and houses where there's wires hanging from the ceiling and there's damp and mould and all that kind of thing. I, I mean, who is the RTB that regulates standards? Are there standards? Is there a minimum that, that owners have to abide by? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, a landlord's obliged to maintain a property so that it complies with um, what's known as the Housing Standards for Rented Housings uh, Regulations 2019. So those regulations set out the basic um, standards that a, a property must comply with. Um, and so for each, say, apartment or flat or, or house being rented as a separate unit, um, the landlord must ensure that the rental property is free from damp and in a proper state of structural repair, both internally and externally. And the regulations also require that roofs, roofing tiles, slates, windows, floors, ceilings, walls, stairs, doors, curtain boards, all of these things, you know, ceilings, walls, um, are in a are maintained and mm. in a good condition and state of repair. Do you find in threshold, uh, John Mark, that people, some people, are so desperate for housing, especially in the current market, which is an absolute disaster? I'm sure we're all agreed on that. That they'll kind of put up with anything to get a roof over their heads. Yeah, right now is particularly harrowing for, for renters because many just can't access the private rented sector. And we're also seeing in Threshold um, such a wave of private renters and their families coming to us because they're facing a notice of termination. And it's a notice of termination that often can't be challenged because it is legitimate. It does comply the with the rules. The place has been sold. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, tenants are um, absolutely loath to, to raise issues yeah. and would only do so if um, things are, are really, really kind of very challenging I mean, in that, terms of the physical really environment. That really makes it terribly difficult because this body exists to say we're here to step in if something goes wrong and yet people feel, well, if I complain about the landlord, he'll chuck me out. You know, there is that imbalance there. Is there anything that that you think should be done to redress that and keep the, the rogue landlords, as it were, kind of under control? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. I mean, on one, one level, it seems obvious that, you know, you, you just apply um, new legislation and it will sort everything out. Currently, we just have such little supply. You know, we, we saw in recent reports by Daft and RTB um, the abject lack of available um, accommodation in the should, private Should the RTB sector. or does it even have the capacity or do you think should they just do spot checks maybe on properties that are rented out anybody on the register just go in and say do you know what we're coming in to check the wiring and check the mould and check the damp and make sure that I, I know it's it's a massive 
thing, but shouldn't they be doing that? Well, it, the area of physical standards um, rests currently with local authorities. So it's actually, you know, your, your city councils, your county councils, um, in, in, in which they are kind of tasked with that. And do even they? though do it's they very do it? much, um, it's done, but it's it's it done in in small numbers, and mm. and they usually try and focus on areas, geographic areas of cities and towns uh, and neighbourhoods where they where they suspect there's there's a, a probably a high level of contravention of the standards, and so I suppose, you know, there's a question of you know introducing spot checks, I suppose. Um, that wouldn't necessarily improve the outcomes for inspections overall. I mean, the entire um, system of inspections needs a complete overhaul. Does it? Um, yeah, and so that we, we can try and ensure that housing um, is brought up to kind of a, a high standard. So it's while inspections are important on their own, um, it's not enough. Um, like the majority of those inspections, they don't meet the standards. You'll, mm. If you look at kind of um, the reports... Um, and that's that's why kind of we've asked for a thing called a, a you know an NCT for housing, so that um, you know landlords are obliged to demonstrate that the, the property meets those uh, minimum standards, okay. and we've recommended linking that to the registration for the property. And with ironically, the and I think it is very ironic that if you have your apartment and you give it back to the council for HAP or RAS. Those inspections are done. They, they have are. the minimum. They come in and make sure your kettle works and that you've no damp and that all the walls meet each other. So for their tenants, they make sure you do this. But for private tenants, no inspection. Nobody cares. It's certainly um, a much lower inspection regime. Um, and I suppose the question for us is also where those majority of inspections fail, what's the level of kind of follow up? Because um Inspectors do go in afterwards and, and again, there's a high level, a very, very high level of failure the second time mm. round and, you know, they've given them, you know, so many months to, to rectify, mm. to, to mend their hand. I mean, if that was a restaurant, that that would be handed a closure order or, or a you know, did the, inspect, the food inspectors go back in and say, are the rat droppings gone? Have you cleaned under the thing? And you're not opening until you have, you know, this is somebody's home. Yeah, there, there's, there seems to be some kind of cultural thing around housing and the fact that, you know, um, if you're an owner occupier, you kind of you have a certain set of kind of yeah. rights. If you're renting, unless you're renting from you know kind of unless you're renting from a, a, a social housing provider like a local authority or a approved housing body, you tend to not always, but you, you tend to have a, a pretty good um, you know rental experience. You know you, there, there are certain standards in the private rent sector. Um, it, it has been very much you know let the market um, prevail here. Uh, especially on the physical standards. And they're the one thing that probably a blind eye is being turned on right now because yeah. of the abject uh, lack of supply, because, because of that relationship between supply yeah. and, and kind of in, in, and improvements. All right. Okay, well, listen, more to do in this space. As we know, John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive of Threshold, thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show today. Thanks, Sinead. Now, here on The Home Show, we always like to help you bring the wow factor into the place you live. And if you managed to get abroad this summer, you were probably envious at the lovely Spanish or Italian courtyards filled with terracotta pots, jasmine and orange trees. Well, we can't promise you that, but we can certainly get a feel for the courtyard look by transforming a small outdoor space into a serene courtyard garden. And to help us do that, Fanula Fallon, horticulturalist and Irish Times garden writer, joins me now. Fanula, we love the idea of a tiled courtyard, big overflowing terracotta 
plants and that lovely bistro table look. Tell us how to achieve it. Um, well, I mean, one of the great things about courtyard gardening, first of all, is that it offers really good shelter conditions for growing. So it's fantastic from that point of view. You can grow a lot more in this little kind of, it's like your own little miniature wall garden. And a lot of the mistakes that people make when it comes to these kind of small, intimate spaces are, um, first of all, trying to make them look a bit bigger, for example. So people think, okay, I'll use small plants in a small space, which is actually the, the, the complete opposite of what you should be doing. So think big is one, one piece of advice I would definitely give. Go for really handsome containers, really big, elegant plants, ideally lots of foliage. Um, we talk about, we all love flowers. I mean, I love flowers too, but really foliage and greenery is at the heart of making these kind of courtyard spaces feel really well furnished and lush and comfortable to be in. So it's really about concentrating on the greenery, first of all. There are lovely kind of, um, lots of lovely evergreens to give you year-round interest. You know, things like tetrapanics and tree ferns and pittosporums and just lovely grasses like hackanacloa. And all these will give a really good furnished look to that kind of space year-round, which is really important if you want to use it, you know, throughout the the autumn and into the spring months as well. And a lot of us have really you know, value that about our, our, our courtyard spaces over the, the, um, the pandemic years. We really learned to prize them like that. I love the idea of those giant big stone urns and I think it's a great idea. A lot of us would, me included, would probably try to fill the space with lots and lots of small pots. But yeah. actually having those big feature ones, if you can, and you can grow a tree in them really, can't you? You can. And, and the thing is, you don't even, you can grow a shrub. And this is the thing, people think, oh, small space, I can't grow a tree. You can actually grow um, a, a tree, a small tree, things like Amalankir is, is a lovely small tree for a courtyard garden. But you can also grow shrubs and there's a great way of making them fit into these kind of spaces and, and giving you more, more room, but also giving you that kind of leafy structure, which is to call, do what's called skirt lifting, them, which is to basically take the lower branches off them and you leave all that lovely space beneath them, but you get that lovely upper kind of canopy of leaves. So this works really well for a lot of shrubs. Mm. And you get this kind of lovely kind of elegant silhouette to the plants. And for anybody that's interested in that, there's a great um, um, Instagram account and, and a feed of this guy called Jake Hobson, or Nowaki, who's this English gardener went off to Japan and um, really studied how they train and sculpt their, 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 their plants into these spaces to make these lovely sculptural shapes that are, 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 are suitable for small areas. Now, one of the features that I love in this kind of a, an enclosed garden or a, or a walled space is the use of vertical spaces. So they're the walls or trellises yeah. or fencing and all that. Uh, and, and trying even if you don't have that to kind of make a pergola because you can grow climbing plants and they actually grow quite well in our climate, don't they? Oh, they do. And, and you know, vertical space is everything in a courtyard. So important in terms of basically you've got all this wonderful vertical growing space that you can cloak with climbers. And they're, they're, they're a wonderful range of climbers we can grow in an Irish um, garden. You know, again, I would be looking at things that give you a good bit of year-round interest and some flower colours. So there's lots of beautiful clematis varieties like Early Sensation and um, um, Avalanche that give you evergreen foliage and they will do really well in these sheltered conditions. Um, things like Trackless Spermum, which is a lovely kind of evergreen with these scented white flowers, um, Jasmine. And the other really important thing I, I would also say about these vertical kind of spaces, when you're using these fences and these walls to cloak your gardens, what you're trying to do is you're really trying to blur the boundaries of your courtyard space. You want it to drop back. That's really important. You're trying to make it invisible to give the sense of mystery and privacy. So again, painting them or staining them a kind of darker color, these nice smudgy grays or kind of forest greens is really a good way of giving a sense of kind of you know, depth to the planting. Mm. 
uh, because they're they're a backdrop and they're they can be a divider in some cases if you want to kind of section out the space that you have, even if it's very Absolutely. small space, somewhere to sit and and maybe somewhere to plant yeah. and somewhere to eat or you you know and to hide the ugly bits. I mean, yeah. we all have the ugly bits. We all have the the shed and the shed and you know, the, yeah. the, the the kids toys and and just the stuff that we need to hide and even in a small court actually particularly in a small courtyard space you really want to kind of conceal these areas so a little area hidden behind trellising and that trellising or pergola planted up it hides it all away out of sight and and you're also actually creating another vertical space to grow climbers mm. up mm. so it, it doubles up in many ways now, one of the features of any courtyard that I've seen is the fact that there's no lawn, there's no grass, nothing to yeah. mow. So what kind of materials work? I mean, you can have cobbled brick or these large porcelain tiles, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah. also even putting an area of, of pebbles is, is a good idea. Absolutely. Yeah, and actually I think an area of pebble is really good, even from an environmental point of view. It's, it's really important not to cover the entire area of a courtyard space with hard um impermeable paving because it just contributes to problems like urban flooding and yeah, everything is telling us to go away from that. So yeah, an area, if you are using kind of hard landscaping materials, as we, we, we use them, we, we refer to them, a mix of pebble and um, ideally a permeable um, paving. And if you are going to go for paving, ideally an Irish one, so like mm. a, a Donegal slate or a Kilkenny limestone, in that small space, quality counts for everything. Now, there has been a somewhat disturbing trend uh, in some gardens and in some magazines I've been reading about where, where people want the greenery, but they don't want a lawn and they don't want the effort of it. And they've been putting down AstroTurf or, or some yeah, model God. of it. Have, have you seen that and come across it? Would you recommend it? I definitely wouldn't recommend it. And I hope that most people are really, there's a really huge move against this for environmental reasons. It's terrible for the soil. It's terrible for garden wildlife. You get loads of microplastics leaching into the soil. And actually, it looks really dirty and scruffy very quickly. Mm. But there's a real campaign, a real movement to kind of highlight the fact that this is, is not a good way to go at all. And you don't need it. You know, as I said, you know, lovely, high quality landscaping materials, so much nicer on the eye. This, and, you know, these small spaces are so intimate and, and we're, we're, we're looking at them in kind of close detail. You know, so it's really important to go for these lovely, good quality, natural materials and after you steer completely clear of AstroTurf. It's, it's a no-no for so many mm. reasons. Yeah. Mm. Now, one of the kind of trends of the various lockdowns that was a very positive move was the increase in people growing food in their gardens, whether it's herbs yes, and tomatoes or whether it's kind of the full lot of your dinner. Um, so yeah. how, how do you incorporate uh, planters or food growing elements into a courtyard garden? So when you have a courtyard garden and you've got this limited growing space, it's really important, I suppose, to concentrate on the high value and edible plants. So the things that really you'll get a lot of eating or picking from. And that really, a lot of the time, is herbs. So herbs can really be easily incorporated into a wind box. You know, you have sun-loving herbs, things like rosemary and thyme. Or the shady plants, like things like parsley, will do happy in light shade or coriander. These can easily be just put into little, in, in the, into the beds or into um a hanging basket or into a, a, just a pot and they'll give you lots of picking right throughout the year. And the same with leafy vegetables. I mean, we can easily grow a couple of cut and come again types of lettuce in, in a pot or in a bed or in a, in a window mm. box. And again, you, you just get so much value out of those. I mean, if you grow three like different types of cut and come again lettuce for the summer months, you will be able to repeatedly pick them every week to 10 days for several months. 
you know, it's, it's amazing what you'll get out of it. Indeed, indeed. And then finally, I think the one feature that people always think about when they're thinking about it, maybe certainly a European courtyard garden in the in the lovely sunshine, is some kind of water feature. Now, maybe not the bird bath or the fountain, but what kind of yeah. things w- would you reckon? What's stylish nowadays? Okay, so the first thing I would say about water features is it's really easy to get water features wrong. And in a small space, they can be, if you get it wrong, that the sound of a water feature if it's wrong, to be really annoying and really <laughs> aggravating. So it's really yeah. important to keep that in mind. Um, I love just very subtle, gentle water features. Uh, Howard and Mays is a great um, garden centre. They do this lovely quartz and steel ones with these kind of almost like they're called, I think they're called water boxes um, where the, the water just trickles very gently off the surface of, of, of the, the, the structure. And they look really good and these kind of very slick, very beautifully made and really good in an urban setting. Or something like a simple big wide water bowl is wonderful as well and the birds will come and drink from that as well so my advice is is to keep it really simple with water features in in a small space really simple really paired back and something that's really you want to soften that structure Mm. with lots of nice planting around it as well so it has a kind of secret almost magical quality to it Okay, wonderful. Well, listen, fantastic. I'm, I'm on holiday again just listening to you. <laughs> it's a beautiful idea. <laughs> uh, and hopefully, ho- hopefully uh, lots of people will be inspired by that. Fanula Fallon, horticulturalist and Irish Times garden writer. Thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show. Thank you. Now still to come. If money was no object... What luxuries do the rich and famous go for in their homes? Well, we have interior designer to the stars, Arlene McIntyre. She'll be showing us how to bring the bling to your bathroom. You can get your questions into us, email them, problems or queries to the home show at newstalk.com or text us on 53106 for 30 cents. Join me back here in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. Washing money down the drain is what we're going to be talking about next because we are talking about luxury bathrooms now. I don't know about you, I love an old luxury bath. One of those big copper ones, freestanding claw feet. I don't have one, by the way, because they're far too expensive, but that's the kind of thing I think about when I think about luxury. But uh, to tell us what people are actually uh, buying with uh excess of uh, income that they have. Well, then let's talk to Arlene McIntyre from Ventura Designs, who is here to talk to us all about luxury bathrooms. Thank you. Uh, We are going right into the luxury end of the market here. Mm -hmm. This is the money, no object zone. And we're going to talk about bathrooms. But actually, I feel I'm doing it a disservice by just even calling them bathrooms. Well, they're, I know, and they really have moved uh, on. Like people are actually devoting their like bedroom spaces to bathrooms now. And so bathrooms are, are now like very much like having a home spa in your home. And people really want that experience. It is where they spend a lot of their time um, at the end of a long day. And it's somewhere that they feel really needs to work hard for them after a long week or a day. Yeah. Now, look, we all want that. <laughs> And we all, you know, have a bathroom that is functional and tiles and it does the job and we get into the bath and all of that. But actually, when it comes to the lux end of the market, people seem to be looking for far more than that. Now, we've seen, I don't know, countless celebrity bathrooms on the Internet and the Kardashians prancing around kind of loos, which are bigger than most apartments in Dublin Mm -hmm. and all that. What kind of thing um, are, are say, the top end 
outfitters and clients and and providers um, offering because it seems to me there was a whole trend maybe it's still there for this hotel bathroom look Mm -hmm. you know that people want all this beautiful marble and suspended everything off the floor and wet rooms nearly yes Um, but you're taking it a step further spas spas oh totally that's at home yeah at home so your home your, your actual bathroom feels more like a spa and so that even your shower is creating a spa experience whereby you can have aromatherapy oils coming out of your recessed um, shower head. Uh, you can have lighting therapy. Um, you can have steam showers. Like there are a number of really incredible things that can and cannot be done. We're getting a big ask for twin showers where we have two shower heads within the one space. Why? Uh, so they can shower together. Oh, I see saving water. Well, I see. saving water exactly. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the reason if you have two showers on the go. Yes. Wow, twin showers. Yeah, twin showers okay. and bathtubs are really important. Freestanding bathtubs are really important as well. Now they've always been a luxury kind of thing and a lovely look, especially in hotels. These kind of cast iron or claw-footed bathtubs. Yes, but there has been a move towards like copper. And yeah. these very deep, you know, these Japanese baths that you kind of have a, this high back on them. Yeah. So, so tell me what's available in yes. that market. So bathtubs that hold their heat are really important and they obviously are more expensive. Um, a lot of these bathtubs are very uh, hard wearing. They're freestanding. They're made of volcanic limestone. Um, they're ultra luxurious. Um, you'll often find they range anywhere, you know, from... 20,000 upwards very easily. They're very hard to get into the space. So with anything natural, it's extremely heavy. So with that, everything, you have to consider that there's a knock-on effect with anything that is very expensive. So if you consider that a porcelain tile might be 6 mil thick and a real marble tile will be 12 mil thick, it's all about how to get and hike those tiles up to your bathroom space. So the, the more expensive the product often the harder it is to install, but the finish is fantastic. So you might need even like reinforcements just to hold yes. it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So so make sure you have your, your trades in place. Over, I'm not over that. Now, of course, <laughs> 20,000 for the bathtub. That probably doesn't even include the taps. Oh, Talk no, no, <laughs> no, not at all. So taps are like jewellery and they really can range from anywhere from one and a half thousand to two and a half thousand per tap. And they are, I mean, there are absolutely magnificent designers and designs on the market um, what Italian makes a designers, tap? German designers, magnificent, beautiful Art Deco taps and brushed mm. brass or copper finishes. Uh, Nickel is making a return, by the way. So, yeah, it's all about the taps right. and the finishes I'd and the hardware. I'm kind of expecting Swarovski crystals on that. Well, that <laughs> the finishing touches make the space. Okay, so, so we've spent 20 grand on the bath, mm-hmm. a couple of grand on the taps. Yes. So the loo, we're not going to skimp on the, the toilet, no, are we? Oh, it's all about the smart loo. Okay, and these guys okay. are really serious. And I, I find that a lot of my clients are fetching, you know, f- looking for these actual WCs. They can range again anywhere from 2,500 to 25,000. 25,000 for um, a toilet? Yes. And okay, the lid what actually... It, what does it do? The lid actually opens upon your arrival for you. You don't have to touch it. You get everything bar a massage. I mean, it's wash, blow dry. It works. It glows in the dark. It practically sings to you. And they are the new substitute to the B-Day, but they are a product to watch. Just like electric windows in cars. I know a lot of people are going, God, that's crazy. 
But we might find in the future that it's just going to be standard that you have loos of this level. We had somebody on last year uh, talking about the very first Japanese loos to be introduced yes. to Ireland and the fact that the the seat turns around for each new user and it kind of this little blow dry implement yes. thing. And he was saying to me, and I didn't quite believe him at the time, that mm-hmm. they were flying. Oh, flying. Yeah. They, I mean, the, the market leader is a company called Toto and they're Japanese. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately, I, I have to admit, we have one in our own home. Oh, do you? You're getting the full blow dry treatment. I'm not. Morning. I'm not a fan of that feature, <laughs> but it's it's there. And has it, it transformed your life, Arlene? <laughs> it hasn't really. <laughs> it's not a place that I would like to spend a lot of my time. Believe me, but it is a really. It's something. It's something to think about. Your loo is really important, and I think wall hung loos are actually lovely, and they they create that lovely uh, streamlined look in the space. It's easy to clean beneath the loo. So I would spend a lot of time on shopping for my sanitary wear. And it sounds to me like nowadays that everything is suspended, whether it's kitchens or bathrooms. And it's it does give that illusion of space if you don't have a huge loo that if you can see the whole floor, you know, everything looks bigger. Okay, so now you're soaking in your 25 grand bath. You're sitting on your 25 grand loo. You'll want some entertainment uh, to keep you occupied. So what what kind of thing now can be done? Well, audio is really important. Again, and all across all of the larger projects I've worked on with the really, you know, the higher end budgets, they like to have a plasma screen recessed into their bathroom. Of course. So (laughs) may that be within the shower space (laughs) or it could be sitting opposite your bathtub, you know, where you're relaxing in the evening and you can catch up on your Netflix. And it's not going to steam up now or anything Well, you do. There is a certain uh, level of equipment you need around that. It has to meet IP regs and you do need to be very mindful of moisture in the bathroom and all of that. But that's like incredibly popular. And I've seen these mirrors. I mean, and they're quite, they seem to be in a lot of places that are linked up to Bluetooth. So they can, you can have your playlist while you're brushing your teeth kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's normal, is it? Very normal. Very normal. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. Much uh, to you and your very extravagant clients, who I'm sure you do a fabulous job for Adventura Design. And thanks for joining us once again on The Home Show. And that's all we have time for on the show this week. If you'd like to get involved in the show, if you have a question for us or if you have a topic you'd like us to go off and research and cover on the show, well, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. 53106 or email us at any time during the week to thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And don't forget to check out the podcast on the website. Uh, thanks to Maurice O'Sullivan producing this week with Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy on Sound. Anton Savage is up next. Have a fantastic weekend. And remember, we're back here on Saturday at eight o'clock.